From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. Masa Amini was 22 years old when she was killed in police custody in Tehran, the capital and largest city in Iran. Masa was arrested for not wearing a hijab, which is required of women in Iran. Her death sparked the woman life freedom movement, demanding the end of compulsory hijab laws and other forms of discrimination and oppression against women in Iran. The movement was met with brutal repression by the Iranian authorities, but over a year after the death of Masa Amini, protests and a greater movement for women's rights have continued in Iran. We want to understand Iran's long history of protests and the impact that the woman life freedom movement is having on Iran and the world. So today, we're talking about the movement for women's rights in Iran. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Shadi Mukhtari. Shadi is a professor here at the School of International Service, where she teaches classes on rights and political change in the Middle East and post-revolutionary Iran. Shadi is currently researching the human rights dynamics of protest movements and transitions in the Middle East, particularly in Iran, Egypt, and Tunisia. Shadi, thanks for joining Big World. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Wonderful. Shadi, I want to start with a timeline question. Will you give a general overview of the trajectory of post-revolutionary Iran that brought Iranians to the 2022 woman life freedom protests? To put it very, I guess, uh, simply here, many Iranians who participated in the 1979 revolution had, you know, key aspirations centered around, you know, freedom, social justice, and self-determination. So basically having a society that's kind of free of the monarch's repression, uh, the Shah at the time, um, economic inequality, and also free from American political and cultural imperialism. Um, And so for them at the time, the means for achieving those aspirations, not for everyone, but for a lot of different kind of factions um, and ideological groups who participated in the revolution, the means for these, you know, attaining these aspirations was a return to kind of our authentic selves through Islam. Um, And once Khomeini and his camp kind of consolidated power um, and kind of became the revolution themselves, uh, Islam kind of turned into the ends um, instead of the means towards achieving kind of these aspirations. Um, And so you could say that Iranians ever since have been trying to kind of maneuver through uh, reform or upend uh, what they ended up with, with the 1979 uh, revolution. I mean, essentially uh, a project of top-down Islamization. And so, you know, you went through several stages. Uh, One of the watershed moments, of course, was, or periods, Uh, was the reform movement in the late 90s, early 2000s, where you had kind of the sons of the revolution. I mean, these were were committed Islamists, revolutionaries who wanted to reform this Islamization project, this Islamic state, and turn it into something um, that was uh, more aligned with kind of rights and freedom and kind of these principles of tolerance and 
you know, multiple interpretations of Islam and that so on and so forth. Um, and that project was, you know, in a nutshell, shut down after a few years. Um, and then we had the 2009 Green Movement, um, which was in response to, you know, another kind of um, Islamist uh, or post-Islamist, so an Islamic reformer, uh, at least at that time, um, who ran for president uh, and by most accounts probably won, um, but was not allowed to win in the end. So the election fraud that brought people to the streets. Um, and, you know, you had several months of uh, protests, but, you know, faced with repression, um, you know, heightened levels of, of repression uh, compared to the years that had preceded it. Um, you know, all sorts of activists jailed, um, you know, protesters killed with sniper fire, um, you know, reports of torture, you know, the whole gamut of uh, the means of, of, of repression. Um, and then we've had, you know, over the last 10 years, um, you know, other attempts to bring in uh, reformers uh, through elections uh, and the rise of protest movements, um, you know, relating to a host of, of grievances, um, increased poverty, you know, gas prices, environmental degradation, water shortages, um, repression, uh, and then also um, in the mid-2010s, you get a rise in, you know, not large scale, but intermittent protests around women's rights and particularly the hijab issue kind of, and, and, all, and forms of kind of uh, just ordinary individuals um, contesting the hijab kind of on the street in their day-to-day -day interactions. Um, so all of this kind of brings us to, um, you know, 2022. And I, I guess I might add also, you know, the sense that we have tried to reform the Islamic Republic from within, you know, not once, not twice, but many, many times. And the regime has kind of been resistant to that. Um, coupled with, I mean, just the clearest sign, I mean, the, the regime basically not even wanting to play that game by allowing reformists to run anymore. So even if people wanted to place faith in this idea of reform from within, um, it, you know, the regime was now cutting off that avenue. Um, so really kind of the sense of, you know, there are no avenues left to affect <laughs> political change. Um, and then faced with the story, you know, that's revealed by two female journalists um, who are incredibly brave, um, who, who bring Masa Amini's story to the rest of the world um, and who were just released from jail, you know, less than a month ago after a year, over a year in detention. Um, but they bring this story that's really, I mean, I think familiar to people and it's not surprising to people and it's so emblematic of kind of the random um, and unaccountable, you know, violence that people are subjected to um, along with, you know, th this regime of 
not only just standard plain old vanilla vanilla authoritarian regime repression, but also um, you know controlling <laughs> the controlling of women's bodies, the controlling of everyone's you know day to day most personal decisions. Um, and so it just all comes, you know, in front of them and is encapsulated in uh, the the story and the images of this young Kurdish woman who's come to um, Tehran, you know, on a visit with her family and ends up dead several days later. Right. And that thank you. That is a lot that 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 does get us from the I guess the late 70s up until 2022 and it, and it got us to this point so what briefly i guess what happened to these protests there's kind of many different layers of um the protests so the protests inside the country um give rise to these protests outside of the country in the diaspora right and all sorts of mobilizations in the diaspora as well um, and so there's a lot of, there's kind of many layers of the stories to be told. I, if, if you don't mind, I wanted to talk a little bit about one aspect that's kind of, of the grievances that give rise uh, to, to, to the protests and, and not necessarily give rise to the protests, but give context to it. Um, and this is part of, you know, the research that I'm working on now, but I think it's like a big piece of the puzzle that is not talked about. So obviously there's, you know, the grievances against the state are many. Um, but there is this element um, that really frustrates Iranians. And what it is, is, you know, and again, it goes, takes us back to the revolution, right? Because the revolution was in many ways challenging Western imperialism. And what happens is that the regime, you know, has a brand that has really, really endured and stuck with it. And that is, you know, I'm, I'm labeling this in my research now as a form of, you know, anti-imperialist victim, victim branding. Um, so obviously Iran's not alone in this, uh, but I think it's one of the most successful cases, right? Where the regime, um, you know, creates its identity on the international plane around this idea of, you know, its resistance to Western hegemony in the Middle East and a host of policies impacting both Iran and, you know, extending to Palestinians and other parts of the region. Um, and, you know, that is kind of the, the primary lens through which Iran state and population kind of, you know, <laughs> tied up into one um, is viewed. And, and um, you might say that, no, of course, there's always been discussions about the what the regime does when it comes to women's rights and human rights. And that's true. Uh, but the problem there uh, is that uh, essentially the people who have been most eager to talk about uh, Iran's human rights and women's rights violations have been uh, people who, you know, have these kind of orientalist, you know, savage victim savior type worldviews and who often use Iran's women's rights and human rights violations instrumentally to justify, you know, 
aggressive kind of Western policies from sanctions to, you know, even championing military intervention in Iran. Um, and so that kind of has allowed uh, the regime to label um, any criticisms of its human rights as kind of imperialist. And, and so that's kind of the political dimension of it. Um, there's also the cultural dimension. We, you know, we have our distinct Islamic identity and we are implementing it in our society, right? Um, so it's kind of a, a DEI <laughs> right, uh, type argument. Um, that, you know, branding is problematic because um, a lot of people who are very well-intentioned and have very pro progressive outlook and have seen how George W. Bush used women's rights and human rights when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, have developed kind of a allergic reaction <laughs> to, um, you know, these human rights discourses. And so they kind of buy into the idea that anytime someone wants to talk about um, human rights in Iran or women's rights in Iran, um, they're kind of aligning with or they're kind of an extension of American imperialism. And so that has made it very difficult for Iranians both inside and outside of the country to really shed light and bring about kind of moral clarity um, to uh, the horrible things the regime does to Iranians. Because as soon as you start talking about that, uh, the discussion somehow gets shifted to American imperialism or, or hegemony or whatever. Um, and so this has, again, been a huge source of frustration for Iranians. Um, I wanted to put that out there because I think it provides a lot of context for the question of what happened um, to, to the protests. So inside the country, um, you know, the protests at the beginning start out, I mean, they're, they're extraordinary, right? They're, they're just, um, I mean, even though they're building on kind of these um, waves of protests in Iran um, and kind of normative change within society and all of that, they're extraordinary because they're led by women and even schoolgirls um, demonstrating extraordinary bravery. Um, and you see these videos of girls, um, I mean, like there's one in particular chasing, schoolgirls chasing an official from the Ministry of Education out of the courtyard and throwing their veils at him. Um, or, you know, schoolgirls standing in front of a picture of Khomeini with, you know, their hairs uncovered, uh, hijabs removed, and middle fingers pointing at Khomeini. Um, so, you know, there's... At the same time, um, you know, this extraordinary ethos of the protests um, where people are, you know, singing songs and, you know, performances and digital art and videos that both convey kind of the immense injustices that Iranian women and all, all Iranians endure, um, but also put forth kind of a vision for a starkly different future uh, of living with equality and freedom. Um, I mean, some people might be familiar with Baraya, the song that won 
a Grammy that has interesting <laughs> discussion there too, uh, but it's very powerful, right? Um, and I should say that the protests were not, you can't really just say they were hijab protests, right? They are really much broader than that. And many of the slogans speak to the fact that they, the protests are about, we do not want this regime anymore. And that that is, yeah, that's a question I would like to ask because Masamini's death was was undoubtedly the catalyst. But what were the key grievances of the woman life freedom protests? As you said, they were not just about hijab. So what were the key points? Yeah, I mean, it was closing off avenues for impacting political change, um, Mm -hmm. you know, gender based discrimination that, you know, I think, interestingly, there's been this huge normative change in Iran when it comes to gender-based norms. Um, mm-hmm. And when you see men, you know, uh, standing behind women and chanting <laughs> these slogans mm-hmm. for women's rights, I mean, it sometimes it's just like I have to pinch myself when I saw some of these <laughs> scenes. It was extraordinary. Um, but I think the whole society has really just woken up to the immense you know, um, subjugation of women that has gone on for 45 years. I mean, obviously, you know, the patriarchy predates that, but institutionalized um, discrimination. So, you know, it's it's like the two are entwined. It's not a depoliticized kind of discussion of women's rights that you just root in like backwards culture and religion. It's 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 highly politicized because it has to do <laughs> the state and you're essentially saying you know that we do not want the state anymore um, or this regime so the the iranian diaspora all around the world mobilized uh in unprecedented ways for woman life freedom so for people who are again not, not as familiar with it can you just briefly describe these mobilizations and then talk about their effects what effect did this have so i think you know you could describe the iranian diaspora broadly um as Iranians who, you know, um, really kind of <laughs> harbored many ill feelings and disdain for this regime, uh, but found political activism kind of a futile endeavor. Um, and so they just quietly carried their disdain from the regime with them as they went along with their day-to-day kind of immigrant lives. Um, and all of a sudden, when they watch um, you know, these images of, of women, you know, taking to the streets um, and removing their veils and burning their veils. And I mean, just the, the empowerment there and the bravery and courage that's on display, it really kind of politicizes them um, and, and mobilizes them and inspires them. Um, so they start taking, you know, to the streets in wherever they are. Um, you know, you have huge protests uh, in Berlin and Toronto and London and Washington and, and in a lot of places throughout the world that you would not expect to see protests. I mean, it's quite a phenomenon. Uh, the initial protests really kind of maintain the same spirit of hope and the possibility of kind of real change um, of the protests inside Iran. Um, there are a lot of kind of moving artistic productions and calls for international solidarity um, that that come out. Um, a lot of activists cry to make the case for why we are not dealing with an issue of 
you know, culture, that cultural anti-imperialist branding of the state is not what's at stake here. You know, a lot of people in Iran do not want to wear the hijab. Um, do not want this regime. Uh, and, and so, you know, they are able to get all sorts of, um, you know, forms of various forms of solidarity from just ordinary citizens. I mean, French school kids singing the Baraya songs that I mentioned earlier um, in Farsi, um, all the way to, you know, members of, of various parliaments becoming sponsors of um, people who had are later kind of um, given the death penalty for participating in some of the protests. I mean, there's some really interesting kind of um, forms of mobilization that diaspora Iranians take on, and they actually do get Iran removed from the Commission on the Status of Women uh, at, at the UN, which is incredible. I mean, the UN doesn't operate that way generally. They, they, they believe in engage, engaging everyone, right? And so it was extraordinary. Uh, and they created a, a special fact-finding mission on the crackdown um, at the Human Rights Council. So they did these very interesting um, and important kind of... Um, activities and forms of mobilization they undertook. But then there was this other side <laughs> to the mobilizations, and you start seeing it early on, but then it just really comes to dominate, unfortunately. There's this discourse that's pre-existing before Mahathamidi's uh, killing um, that's you know called the regime lobby um, discourse, essentially, where uh, certain people um, or organizations are labeled as being on the payroll and doing the political deeds of the Islamic regime. And these are people who are, you know, Iranian, hyphenated Iranians, Iranians in the diaspora. Um, and so, you know, most prominently it starts out with the National Iranian American Council, um, it goes by NIAC, it's kind of a, um, organization for um, Iranian Americans and supporting Iranian American issues, but they have always taken a very strong foreign policy role and they have been champions of, you know, removing sanctions um, and trying to stave off any kind of military intervention in Iran and, and promote negotiations on the nuclear issue and, and, and peace. And um, it also includes, you know, a slew of academics, journalists, um, and people who, you know, for, at various points may have talked about, you know, how we have reformers and we have hardliners in the regime and, and, and kind of, you know, um, in a sense, humanized <laughs> certain elements of the regime and said we should be sitting down and talking to these people. Um, or said that, you know, issues around the hijab are more complex than they are sometimes presented, um, and women wear the hijab for different reasons, and so they, um, you know, they live very active lives in, the, in Iran, regardless of, of the discrimination or of the hijab. And so these people come to be labeled as, you know, either lobbyists or apologists for the regime, and then they become subject to uh, a witch hunt, right, around the time. I mean, it, it's been there. It's kind of been lurking on social media. But then with the mass Amini protests, all of a sudden it just explodes. Um, and, I mean, I must say that I think that there is um, 
something to be discussed in that underlying critique of, um, you know, too much kind of contextualizing and uh, moral complexity around a regime that has done, you know, horrible things that there should be more moral clarity on, um, stances of moral clarity. So I think there's something to discuss here in terms of grievances against these groups. But of course, they are not the Iran law. I mean, there's this whole discourse just takes on a life of its own. Um, and so people who are targeted, um, and they really are targeted, I mean, someone called it an online lynch mob. Um, you know, if they have speaking uh, events uh, at universities, you know, there is there are campaigns directed where the universities have to cancel the events. Um, some of them face death, death threats. Um, a lot of them are actually being subjected to, um, you know, online <laughs> uh, character assassinations and threats of sexual violence, sexual profanities. Uh, that really fly in the face of uh, the anti-misogynist spirit of woman life freedom. I mean, it's just, it's really extraordinary um, how people do that in the name of woman life freedom. Um, you know, pictures of, of, of these people designated as part of the um, Iran lobby or regime lobby, you know, appear at protests with blood dripping. I mean, it's, it's just really out of control and actually you know as these things go um a lot of people who who are kind of the biggest enthusiasts of of this discourse and and the witch hunt um end up themselves being accused of at various points of being kind of regime apologists or normalizing the regime or somehow being canceled um and so that really online you know um is the start of really, really problematic um, discourse and politics, which shifts the attention away from and sh shifts the attention away from the regime. Now we're we're just targeting more and more people, um, uh, and and you know really is ugly and um, you know goes against the ethos of of hope. <laughs> Reconstructing Iran, reimagining Iran that you had in those initial protests in Iran and, and, and the other side of, of the initial diaspora mobilizations. Um, and it's almost as if woman life freedom kind of gets then captured by um, these conservative forces within the Iranian diaspora um, who have long kind of been on board with discourses of around, you know, Terrorism. They are lobbying for you know Western governments to designate uh, the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Um, you know they are uh, not against sanctions and generally want more sanctions. Um, you know and so in any case, um, the discourses of of the diaspora start really diverging from what's going on. Um, on the streets in Iran and kind of have their own trajectory, even though they start off, you know, fairly close together in ways that are very unprecedented.
Scotty Mokhtari, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. What are five things you think would have to change before we see meaningful political change in Iran? Any political change uh, for Iran will have to begin with an organized opposition, which we do not currently have. Um, those inside and particularly outside of the country have to devote their energies, um, first and foremost, to building organizational structures and, and leadership. Um, second, opposition forces need to stay focused on the regime uh, and not anyone else. Uh, the witch hunts and divisions are obviously the regime's biggest asset. Um, so, you know, at best, there are conversations to be had about the various divisions um, and the critiques that different groups have of each other. All they can do is try to persuade each other and call in. Um, third, I'd say in order to do this, there needs to be a huge shift in online political culture. Um, perhaps, I mean, I've been thinking about maybe a good start would be for, you know, we have this explosion of political activists, human rights activists, women's rights activists, um, particularly the political activists, uh, could begin by signing some kind of a public commitment um, to engaging in constructive civil discourse online. Um, the fourth, uh, there has got to be um, the inclusion of Islamic reformers um, and post-Islamists and, you know, do you need a big tent to bring down this very powerful regime? Um, so, you know, very few people should be excluded and for very good reason. Uh, and that has not been the case so far. Um, and fifth, the organizing and coalition building that must take shape should be rooted in the ethos of hope and rebuilding Iran from the ashes of the Islamic Republic of the initial women life freedom protests. There is no other way. Thank you. Is there any way in which, because you mentioned the diaspora before the protests had been kind of living their lives and maybe keeping their own counsel about how they felt about the Iranian regime. Is there any way in which these protests help to reunite or build a bridge between people in Iran who want change and the diaspora? Or was that always there? It just wasn't very visible. Initially, I was very hopeful that it would. And, and it, it did seem like People inside Iran and in the diaspora were uni unified in a way that was really unprecedented. Um, and there were there are attempts by some activists, political activists, to really kind of work with people on the ground in Iran. Um, the regime makes that very hard, but something else that makes it very hard is the people uh, in the diaspora, uh, certain groups, um, do not want to work with anyone who has ever been a part of this regime, okay? Uh, so that means um, the Islamic reformers, the post-Islamists, you know, they are 
they have much more support inside the country, you know, uh, but outside the country, just because of, you know, the people who end up being in the diaspora and, and leave Iran tend to be from the middle and upper classes um, and just, you know, not the most religious segments of society. Um, and so uh, they are very quick to just say, we will not talk to anyone who's ever been a part of this regime, even if at this point they're, they are advocating for a secular future for Iran and a secular kind of political order. Yeah, I would imagine that kind of a of a litmus test is something that cuts off a lot of people who have expertise or access and who have 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 maybe been part of a regime or or swept along as part of something that they never really supported and now that they are, you know, have the have the courage or the wherewithal to say, I'd like something different to have people in the diaspora who say, well, you, you were once associated with this. So never, ever can we deal with you. It just, it cuts off your nose to spite your face in a way because it doesn't allow in people. That's absolutely. And it's not even people who were, who never wanted to be a part of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of people who did, but then change (laughs) their views on the regime and whether it's reformable or whether this whole Islamization project is possible, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of those people as well. Right. Okay. So, Shadi, we are more than a year removed from the death of Masa Amini in September 2022. And so I want to know from you, do you think there is a future for woman life freedom? Or will this ultimately be another chapter of the life of Iran's Islamist Republic that is now closed? Yes. Um in the sense of yes and and mostly no, let me say that. Um, uh, so in many ways, it seems that so much that the protests um, gained uh, has slipped away and been captured, right? Or either been <laughs> controlled by the state or captured by these other opportunistic actors, a lot of them abroad. Um, and then you had the one, you know, the one year anniversary of Mass Amini in September, last September, it was so disheartening, right? So you had, you know, a month prior, over a month prior to the anniversary, the regime began arresting activists and particularly university professors, which was interesting. Um, and, you know, just in the lead up to the anniversary, city spaces were occupied by security forces. Um, security forces blocked up the path to, um, you know, where Masamini's gravesite is, which is these are places where people would be uh, gathering for for protests. Um, Massa's parents, who have been extraordinarily brave throughout this time, and challenged the state's accounts <laughs> of. Uh, what happened to her, uh, were placed under house arrest for that day, uh, were not allowed to, to leave, and I think had to actually go in um, to, to uh, some security forces or an office. Um, so, you know, all of that was going on. Um, the, at the same time that week, the regime literally and kind of figuratively borrowed a page from Saudi Arabia's sports wash washing playbook so you know by bringing in ronaldo to and and uh his team to play game in tehran and making kind of that a big spectacle um that you know 
had all sorts of news coverage and diverted attention from the anniversary. Um, and if, as if that was not enough, there was also that week um, a deal that had been in the works for quite a while, but I don't know how it got worked out so that it would happen on that day. Uh, but American uh, hostages, Amer Iranian-American hostages held in Iran um, were released uh, as a result of a deal with the Biden administration. That also took up, you know, further new cycles and attention. Um, and with all of that, the regime was able to just allow that anniversary to pass. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, though, Iranians really continue to yearn for a different reality. Um, uh, and as long as that's the case, um, I think political contention uh, that is premised on the demands that were at the heart of women, life, freedom uh, will continue. And we see that, you know, um, in just an elderly man in the north of Iran uh, singing songs while, you know, young people gather around him. Uh, as a way of resisting <laughs> the regime's, um, you know, rules around singing and dancing and public displays like that. Um, two, you know, the anniversary of the revolution was um, just this week, February 11th, and you had um, uh, basically people back to their balconies shouting death to... <laughs> Uh, Khamenei and death to the dictator. Um, so the grievances and the aspirations for change in a different reality are not going away. It's just a matter of, you know, whether people will learn from um, the lessons that the last year and a half have, have provided them. Shadi Mukhtari, thank you for joining Big World to discuss the woman, life, freedom protests in Iran. It's been an honor to speak with you. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kay. I appreciate it. March 8th is International Women's Day, as it is every year. This podcast will be coming out in March. And just a reminder to all of us that the life of one one woman matters, the life of all women matter, and uh, women living under repression of any kind, uh, it really matters. And maybe we could all think about that on March 8th and every day. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or review, it'll be like bonus episodes of your favorite podcast. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. <laughs>